And so things that would take like six months you can do in less than a month. Um, you know, cost we've demonstrated in not just Sikorsky. I've seen McKinsey studies and other studies that show you see reductions in cost like by over 50%. You see improvements in quality by over 90%. Those are all real. On behalf of the members of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, welcome to this edition of Learning and Living STEM in Connecticut, the podcast of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering. My name is Tan Dillion again. I'm an elected Academy member, and I serve on the Academy's Governing Council. For more information about the Academy, please go to www.ctcase.org. I'm pleased to have as our returning guest, Mike Ambrose, case member and recently retired vice president of enterprise business transformation at Sikorsky, a Lockheed Martin company for part two of what is digital transformation and why is it important? Welcome back, Mike. Hi, Tan, so glad to be back. We had a lot of fun the first time and I'm looking forward to continuing the journey. Same here, same here. I'm definitely hungry for some more intellectual nutrition. It was a fantastic talk and I think our listeners are gonna enjoy part two. So so let's get right into it then. Uh, in part one, we talked about digital integration and integrating the interfaces of a product value stream. Can you give our listeners a quick recap Sure. And, you know, if you go back to that first discussion, we started with the product life cycle. It could be anything. It could be a helicopter, could be washing machine, could be a toaster, could be a car. Um, we used a toaster as an example. I might pull that back out again for today. But really, the whole, the whole idea is, is that in a product value stream, you start with a customer need, requirements, you go through design, you go through build, assembly, test, val validation, you then go into servicing it in the field. Basically any product follows that same value stream. The key is, is from a digital integration standpoint, digital transformation is, is that there's data along that whole product life cycle. And more and more there's data as we become more electronic, the 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 idea is is that by using that data ideally through a single source of truth a single source of, of data is that you're able to manage the interfaces between those individual steps and so in the first part we talked about the complexities of managing those interfaces and also what's enabled by being, being able to use that data um, so with that let's go and talk some more yeah, no, I mean that that's definitely a, a nice recap and uh and if anybody uh you know hasn't listened to the first part, definitely listen to the first part before uh continuing with uh the second part just to make sure, you know, everything follows in a nice sequence. So 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 just uh picking picking up on some of the tid the tidbits that you just mentioned, you also mentioned the, you know digital twins as the holy grail. Can we start there today? 
What does this actually mean? Sure. So, you know, digital twin, we talked about how it's a virtual representation of like a physical product. We, we use the toaster because everyone can relate with the toaster, but it could, it could be anything. Uh, and that digital twin represents every function, every interface, every aspect of that. And when we talked about the toaster, we talked about, you know, the nickel chrome um, filament wires that heat the toast. We talk about the springs. We talk about the levers, the resistors, the the wires. Um, we even talked about what makes a great piece of toast and the chemical reaction that occurs that gives that caramelized uh, outer coating. It needs to be dry. There's like quickly you can get into the thousands and tens of thousands of interfaces that make up something as simple as a toaster. Now the digital twin would be a digital representation of all of that, every aspect of that, that you would then be able to go and optimize designs, optimize the way the toast is made, optimize for how how long in life this operates, how many times you go up and down with a lever, all of that could be data. And so from a digital twin perspective, Taking all that information now allows you to have a digital representation of what's happening. In the first part, we talked about a very important concept called X before you X. Uh, design before you design, build before you build, test before you test, maintain before you maintain, and there's many, many others. The concept when you have something like a digital twin is, is that now you're able to do these simulations and do this X before UX much more efficiently and much faster, things that would take days, weeks, months, years. If you have sufficient data and you have a digital twin, you can do it in a matter of seconds, minutes, hours, depending on the complexity. And so when I talked about the digital twin being the holy grail, it is aspirational in many regards because you're always driving towards what is a complete digital twin. And so when you start to think about that is, is that industry has made a lot of progress in, in some aspects around the design and build assembly portions of the product value stream. That's where you see the most benefits coming um, out of industry because it's the most mature. You know, computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing, and some form or another has been around for as long as 40 years. And so that maturity and being able to attribute data, being able to collect the data and understand how to use it, create simulations, use virtual reality, and other and other tools, has enabled significant savings, particularly in the build portion of the value stream and also being able to optimize on designs and being able to do things like generative design and additive manufacturing that you couldn't even do 10 years ago. All of that is enabled by the data, enabled by constructing the digital twin. So it is, I, I call it aspiration because you're always driving towards that nirvana, but there's a lot that goes into limitations and constraints and what is going to eventually take to have a comprehensive digital twin? Okay, yeah. So, so the so the notion of X before UX certainly makes 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 uh, a lot makes it a lot more clear with respect to the digital twin because now you are able to X before UX and and actually validate that you are Xing before you Xing properly, right? 
Yeah, really important concept because you know we even taught you know you had you had made the great insight last time around. Well, how do you know it works? You know, how do you? So there is the way the state of the art is today is is that you do have to have a correlation. You do have to have some sort of physical testing so that you understand the boundaries and you understand the constraints so that you can you can use the simulations that you can use the data in a way that you're interpolating you know without having to do a lot of extra testing uh, so you know or validation so very important concept now over time as you build this data as you build the confidence in the models and the technology capabilities you're able to start extrapolate and extend those simulations more and that's more of what you're seeing in generative design and with with um you know basically build before you build so so the so you you also mentioned like like a digital thread right and having you know different threads that go to you know uh, depending on what the actual application is uh you can have a thread for like the, the a piece of a component in the toaster or maybe the toaster is a as an actual uh complete system writ large so to speak so like what is the timeline for having a fully functional digital thread, right? And then is there such a thing as a certification of a digital thread? Because that probably goes in line with what we were talking about with the validation of that digital twin so that you know that when you're Xing before you're Xing, it's actually done properly. Yeah, really, really important concepts, especially when you're doing things like, um, you know, for for government defense applications, uh, safety applications, you know, how do you, how do you like certify? How do you know it's good enough? There's a lot into that. So starting with your first question in terms of the digital thread, you know, ultimately you're, because there are different constraints, there's different levels of technology, and that's always evolving, always changing, which hold on to that thought because that's also going to play to the certification okay. is, is that, you know, as you're going in this journey and you're getting more capability, more computing power, all kinds of decision on, so what's important? What do I need to measure? Because there could be gigabytes of data. We had gigabytes of data every time we would fly a helicopter. How do you know what data to use? And so all of that is the evolution. The challenge when you say a fully like integrated digital thread the aspiration, the goal should be on connecting so that you can measure, you can improve certain certain aspects. And I, and I think our discussion last time was effective in terms of understanding like the components or, or, or subsystems so that you can make sure that they're optimized, that you probably start to lose value as you try to do too much, at least for now, too comprehensive. It's too expensive, it takes a lot of computing power, a lot of storage. All of those are trades and all of those are cost and all of those are schedule and all of those are risk. And so the beauty and the balance is, you know, as it matures, how do you find the right thread to go and maximize savings, maximize cost okay. and being able to go and validate? So it is this dance you play with the technologies and with the capabilities always measured against key things like cost and, and schedule and ability to go and, and certify. So the best way to answer that is it is an ongoing trade. And, you know, in terms of like certification, you're starting to see organizations start to begin to say certify digital, digital twins. Uh, and 
my counsel there is, is that it's inevitable. I think that at some point there has to be some sort of standards to say we're at this level. The technology is changing a lot in, in a good way. And so what you're going to probably see, and you're seeing this like in marine applications, I think that's the, from my research, they're, they're a little bit further ahead than other areas uh, in terms of specific applications of a digital twin, mostly for maintenance, you know, in terms of things that uh, are important to the users. And so you'll see specific threads like we talked about last time that will be the subset of probably how certifications will start. Otherwise, it'll be too general, um, at least for now. And, you know, I, I think the technology is changing so ma so fast, it, it'll become obsolete or stale in a hurry. And like anything is once you put a structure around it, it does begin to limit the innovation. Uh, the way I looked at it in, in my career is that you're always measuring the bottom line. Okay. You're always measuring, am I, am I doing it faster? Am I doing it for less cost? Cost in many dimensions, you know, could be used, you know, field, you know, like cost in the field, could be cost to acquire it. So you're always looking at cost, you're looking at time, uh, and then you're also looking at performance and capability. So there's bottom line metrics that you're looking at those early indicators in terms of is the digital and digital tools, the digital enhancements that you're making, are they driving, you know, less costs, faster schedule, better performance? Uh, and there are leading indicators on how you can monitor that over time. Okay. So, so the you know, from the certification perspective, you know, just to, just to expound upon that, just a, just a tad, the, it, it sounds, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the processes or the standards that are in place to certify are based on each individual entity's own set of requirements. So there isn't like a standardized way of doing the certification across the board. Is that, is that right? Or is that wrong? Um, well, it is actually, it's an interesting concept because part of the evolution is, um, you know, the way we're going to validate, uh, verify requirements is that, you know, for the most part, there's a lot of requirements that are, for all good reasons, are there today that you have to meet from, from the sub, you know, from the, um, you know, the lever to the electrical wire here to the buttons. Um, there's design requirements and, you know, you can imagine for something like a helicopter or a jet fighter, it's you know, it's tens of orders, you know, it's thousands of orders of magnitude more complex. And so those requirements exist, they're always there. And so now what you're looking to do is how do you use simulations? How do you use um, digital integration? How do you use things like model-based design, uh, model-based system engineering to complement that and, you know, basically use simulations at the end of the day to take the place of like things like physical testing. And so, you know, that's that's the maturity that you'll see over time. But the reality is, is that, you know, whatever whatever is done from a digital integration standpoint, digital transformation standpoint, needs to, you know, complement and correlate to existing requirements um, as they exist today. Yeah, we're getting some real nitty gritty uh, system engineering yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, okay. But it, but it's important because you know, you know, what's interesting is, is that that's the reality is is that uh, you can do amazing things in these simulations and there's still a structure that we need to fit in and you know as we go and do that there there's healthy there's healthy conflict okay. 
And, you know, I, there's been many times where, you know, I've, I've had discussions, you know, in some cases with three and four star generals and admirals and saying, and including, you know, people from the companies that I've been associated with, where's my savings? Why does it still take so long to go to, you know, to develop products? And, you know, and I think that's some of um, the, the tension that you're seeing. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of uh, high ranking military, you know, uh, you know, recent senior military officers have gone on record as saying, you know, digital transformation is overhyped. Uh, can you talk about, about this a bit more and, you know, like, yeah, I've seen, actually, I've seen that quote myself. So, um, so, you know, and it goes to, I, I was directly asked, uh, I remember, you know, not too long ago by, by a three-star uh, general and said, you know, all this is great. And every time I hear companies talk about it, I just, I, I don't see how I'm saving time, how I'm saving money. And so, you know, fortunately at Sikorsky, we had very specific examples of how we were saving. It goes back to the digital thread, the digital twins are, are not maturing at the same rate um, throughout that product value stream. So said where you see the most maturity is really between the design and the, and the manufacturing. And what we've been able to demonstrate is, is that we have them, and, and it isn't just Sikorsky, there's many other examples of where you can leverage computer-aided design from a simple terminology and everything that feeds into it, which ultimately is model-based design. You know, you're putting attributes against features and capabilities uh, on a part digitally. And by doing that, you're able to do these design before design. You can start doing generative design. You start doing additive manufacturing in many cases. And now you're also able to provide that information to a manufacturing engineer, a quality engineer, a technician, and they're able to go and iterate really fast, provide feedback real time. And so things that would take like six months, you can do in less than a month. You know, cost we've demonstrated and not just Sikorsky. I've seen McKinsey studies and other studies that show you see reductions in cost like by over 50%. You see improvements in quality by over 90%. Those are all real. And I remember one time I was asked by a senior executive at Lockheed says, but, you know, the same question that that three-star general asked, but it's still you're finding things and still you're there's discovery and what we point out what i pointed out it says yeah that was not an area this in this one particular discovery that was modeled in a digital perspective we really don't have a digital representation yet of that particular feature uh and so that's the aspiration that's the holy grail aspect to this is that the race to go and represent what matters now it could still vary. It's always a cost-benefit analysis. Maybe there's decisions. You know, we use a toaster for example. Do you need to digitally represent everything about a toaster? That's some of the intelligence and art of things like artificial intelligence, machine learning are helping make decisions around what needs to be modeled, what needs to be attributed, so that you're making sure that the things that drive the overall cost, the overall schedule performance are being modeled so that you can simulate them and be able to go and risk reduce um, as, you know, before you actually go do that task. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, it almost sounds like maybe like if there was a standardized way of, you know, picking what you needed or what attributes you needed across the board and all corporations, you know, signed up to that, that way of doing it, that might potentially help with 
you know, the velocity and, and, and obviously if you're going faster, you're probably as a result of going faster, reducing the cost of, of, of doing business. But to your point, if you go too fast and you make mistakes, your cost is going to be a lot more on the back end just because of corrections mm-hmm. and stuff. So, yeah, you know, I love the way you're thinking and actually maybe you're going to get a consulting job out of that, <laughs> uh, you know, because we, we did not rehearse that or talk about that. But ultimately, yeah, you know, because it, it is about what is important. And as you figure out, OK, what do I need to attribute? You know, you look at these like use cases and you'll hear more and more about that over time is like, you know, you're making a, you know, a machine fitting um, and machine fittings have applications in thousands and hundreds of thousands of different applications. But there's certain aspects to machining a fitting or additive manufacturing of a fitting, which combines, you know, two parts, for example, is, is that what is what is attributable, what is important. And so, you know, I think following your line of of thought is, is that uh that type, that type of generalization is probably the right way to go after it. Um, I'll have to think more about that, but it's just, you know, that's maybe one of the great things about these kind of forums is that, you know, you get different perspectives, but ultimately, you know, that, that probably has a, that probably has some value in, in, in progressing that more. Okay. No, yeah. Th- thanks for indulging me on, on that. The, uh, mm. so, so, you know, when you were talking earlier about, you know, you have a run for, uh, you know, one of, one of the helicopters that's a Korsky and it's like gigabytes of information, you know, do you think that AI has a role in Digital Twin and, and what do you think that role is? Because, I mean, everyone is always like, oh, well, AI, oh, AI, like AI is the panacea of everything, you know, so like what, what is from, from with your expertise, like what do you think the role is for AI in this whole, uh, you know, digital world here? Yeah. And yeah, it is interesting. I mean, people have all kinds of reactions when they hear artificial intelligence, AI, you know, my perspective on it is, is that artificial intelligence, and you'll hear me say artificial intelligence, machine learning, because that's kind of the state of where it's at right now. You know, if you look at the maturity and the different levels of artificial intelligence, uh, it's an enabler. It's a, an enabler is, is, really an inadequate word in terms of, I mean, it gives life to the digital thread, the digital twins, because when you start to use things like machine learning, data analytics, you know, artificial intelligence, you're able to interrogate the data. You're able to pull out and do analysis and simulations much, much faster than any human can. You do not eliminate the union, the, the human, um, is, is that there still needs to be interpretation of the data. You still need to be able to understand what the data is saying and then be able to iterate on that that's the state of the art of artificial intelligence machine learning it's an enabler for being able to do these simulations a lot quicker you know there's things called like predictive maintenance prescriptive maintenance and that's where you really see it um, artificial intelligence shine where you're using sensors and sensors are a big part of it whether there's sensors on like lathes in the factory or it's sensors on, you know, transmissions uh, on a helicopter, is that those sensors provide vibration, they provide temperature, strain data, that is then enables basically data analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, to go and interrogate those and start looking for trends. And it could be trends in so many different, so many different dimensions that, um, you know, as, as that data analytics pulls and interrogates like that flight that has gigabytes of data, it tells the test engineer, well, 
where what needs to be tested more, what to look out for, information on constraints on being, you know, how many load, you know, G should the helicopter perform, um, to what altitude, to what temperature, you know, it's just all kinds of information. And then when that, we'll use the example, the helicopter goes out in the field and you start to look at like the life of components because helicopters being in the vibratory environment they are, vibration matters, you know, is able to go and see things that we would have never been able to see uh, even 10, 15 years ago. So, yeah, but huge enabler. I mean, a huge fan of being able to apply the data analytics does not eliminate the engineers. It facilitates and enables engineers to do their jobs a lot quicker. That's the state of the art as it is today. Okay, and I'm and I'm glad you you brought up the fact that it doesn't eliminate the engineers because I mean there's a you know a great fear out there as to what AI is going to mean for jobs you know and the future of jobs. So you know how does digital transformation, the digital the digital digital tr- uh, thread and AI impact organizational skills and and you know the the, the jobs that mm-hmm. that those skills will uh, will need to uh, entail. Now, yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. And to me, it's one of the most exciting aspects about digital transformation and everything that goes with it is, is that um, organizations are going to need to transform more so than at any point during the Industrial Revolution. I mean, basically, the hierarchical uh, org structure that has been around since uh, since the Model T, for the most part. <laughs> Henry Ford. You know, <laughs> 10, 115 yeah. years really has not evolved. I mean, you see like Tesla and others and, and you'll see small you know companies attempting to move to more of this agile structure. But for the most part, if you go back, you know, the way I describe the product value stream, you know, I, I even the way I explain it, you know, starts with requirements, goes through design, builds, you know, all the way to maintain, it's sequential. And if you think about it is that with a digital thread and everything I'm described is that there should be this incredible concurrency and there is, you know, there is concurrency that happens, but a key limiting factor is the organization is, is that you have very discrete roles and responsibilities at every step of the way that become barriers to being able to go and, and you know, and I'll use the word barriers, strong word to, to really go in and condensing that as much as I think it, the, the tools and the processes and the vision could enable it. And so with that, and I don't have an answer, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people know the potential is there and you hear things like agile organizations and agile processes, and there are all kinds of standards and, you know, what makes an agile process to the point where we were having before, and I see you smiling. Um, That's usually the reaction when someone says the word agile, that's usually the reaction. Now, I, I look at it as Agile is a really adaptive in terms of how you want the organization, the skills, the talents to move with the product. It's almost like it's an organism. It is an organism that would be this nirvana. What that looks like, I think is going to take some, it will take some evolution, but at the heart of it really is, is that you want parts of the value stream and we'll take manufacturing engineers as an example. I, I started my career as a manufacturer engineer. And, and I can say with all honestly, you know, it was not always the most glamorous. If you want to be an engineer, manufacturing engineer wasn't like at the at the pinnacle, like aerodynamicist or um, or something like that. But 
really, when you look at what's happening today with digital transformation, I had the term, you know, I had the, the terminology when I would talk to my teams at Sikorsky is that I want every manufacturing engineer to be a system engineer because the manufacturing engineers are the conduit between that design requirements build to what happens afterwards, that everything really funnels through them and that the manufacturing engineers were the ones, because that was the most mature part of the digital, digital transformation, they were in the best position to be able to bridge that gap and be able to show how concurrency can be leveraged. So we put a lot of effort around really upscaling the skills of our manufacturing engineers to allow them to think like system thinkers. Now, when people think digital transformation or digital, they, they think engineers. You know, my perspective on it is, is that everyone in the organization needs to gravitate towards more of the system thinking. That's the next step in being able to really leverage digital transformation is, is that the more you have human resources and finance and you know, legal be able to go in and really start to think from a system perspective is now you're connecting those interfaces and you're looking at interfaces in different directions. And this is where that symbiotic relationship with artificial intelligence, machine learning, and being able to understand, interrogate the data. You know, you look at finance, for example, how do you go in and leverage, um, you know, business cases and really be able to point to the things that are going to save money and do things quicker. So fascinating area, fascinating. And, and one that, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes in the future. Yeah, no, th uh, thank you for that. And uh, you heard it here, folks, you know, the days of stove pipes and rice bowls are, are numbered. So, I mean, that's that that sounds like uh, the the term concurrency is, is, is the way to go and the, the system engineering approach. Uh, but not just calling or changing the title of your employee's role. It's actually developing those skills, you know, and, and making sure that they're, they're, they're concretely founded uh, within your organization. So very, very good points and uh, very, very insightful. So I appreciate that, Mike. Well, thank you. So, so let's, uh, let's uh, you know, uh, change, change slants real quick. You know, now that, uh, you know, you, you've, spent a, a, a very good part of your life developing uh, all the expertise that you have. Now that you're retired from Sikorsky, you know, what have you been up to? What have you been doing since? Yeah. And <laughs> I always tell people, Dan, retired with quotation marks, yeah. guess my wife. Never fully you know, retired. Many things. <laughs> no. And it actually, it, it's, it has been incredible. You know, first, uh, I'm a, a board member for RBC Bearings, public company, amazing company. Uh, I'm on like three other advisory boards, oh, wow. okay. you know, startups and just fascinating because this is a way for me to contribute. And, and at the at the root of it is that, as you can see, I, I love the learning. I love helping giving back. And and that's an important part of what I do. A vice chair of the board of governors at the University of Haven. I'm actually leading the search for the next president. But just even that experience in terms of working with students and working with faculty, just just really excites me, allows me to continue to keep learning and giving back. I am consulting. And one of the nice things about that isn't just around the digital transformation that I've spent like the last couple of years doing. I've been doing some real meat and potatoes, aerospace consulting for a company, which, you know, is, is a lot of fun speaking on technology like this. And with all that, what's, what's really nice is that my wife and I are finding time to travel. You know, we both like the landscape, you know, actually, 
you know, uczysz się mówić po polsku od wielu lat, jednak na emeryturium biorą teraz formalna lekcja. So I was, I started learning Polish like years ago. I had to kind of stop, but I've started taking formal Polish lessons. I'm not Polish, but when I was working for Sikorsky, we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time there. You know, we have a factory there. I was able to make a lot of friends. So, you know, that in I'm actually running again. So All right. <laughs> for an old guy, All right. you know, just learning how to run quickly and stay in shape as an old man has been um, fascinating. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bored, as you can see, and not a lot going on. But, yeah, it sounds, sounds but, but like you, you just kicked your feet yeah. up and, you know, you're just wait, waiting for the uh, waiting for the sun to set. But now nah, you're uh, you're yeah. doing some phenomenal things. Wow. I mean, that's uh that's a full schedule for someone that's, you know, not retired. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the big difference is I could, you could manage your own schedule, but it's, uh, it's good. And, you know, forums like this, I think are really important. I mean, that's part of the giving back. So, you know, thank you, Tan, for, for, you know, being such a great host and very insightful. And you gave me some things to think about here. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, you know, thanks for, taking the time within your, you know, your current schedule to, to, to even do this. And then coming back for a second opportunity was uh, very, very tremendous for us. So, you know, our listeners appreciate it. And I certainly appreciate uh, all the insights that you've provided today. So uh, thanks to our returning guest, uh, Mike Ambrose. Uh, for those living in Connecticut and others tuning in from outside our state, we enjoyed learning about part two of DX. If you have not heard part one of DX, I encourage you to listen and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or YouTube. And visit the Academy's website at www.ctcase.org to learn more about our guests, read the episode transcript, and access additional resources, as well as to sign up for the Case Bulletin. Once again, Mike, thank you so much for for coming back. And uh, this was just an insightful discussion. Thank you, Tim.